appreciate uh, you guys leading us into musical worship. At this time, the Sprouts can be dismissed. Uh, kids, uh, kindergarten and younger, can go with Paul and our Sprouts team, uh, if you would like to. And those of us that are not going to Sprouts, turn in your Bibles to Hosea. If you are new to the Bible, uh, I want to teach you a little trick. If you open up the cover of your Bible, you'll find a table of index, table of content, contents rather, and um, you can find Hosea. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the prophets. Uh, it's about three quarters of the way through the Old Testament. Find the page number and you can find the book of Hosea, which is where we are going to be this entire fall season. So let me read the first chapter of Hosea, and if you have a Bible, I ask you just to follow along as I read, and, uh, and just be praying as I go and begin to ask God to speak to us through His Word today. Hosea chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the sons of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will, put, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our eyes to this text. Lord, we are an unfaithful people. We are a people tainted by sin. And because of that, not only are we wandering from you, not only are we prone to wander from you, not only do we want to drift constantly away from who you are and from your word, but it's also uh, hard for us to, to, to hear your voice at times, because of our flesh, because of our own desires, because of what we want. 
So God, I ask that you break through our hard hearts this morning, break through our flesh, break through our wandering and our our drifting souls, and speak to us through Hosea. While this is a book that was written thousands of years ago to a a group of people, we recognize that it is living and powerful and as relevant to us today as it was then. God, convict us of our wandering hearts. Let us see the faithfulness of Jesus. And let us treasure Him. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at that first line in Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea long ago. In many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Hosea was one of these prophets. And God had a message for His people. And I want to say this, God has currently a message for His people through the prophet Hosea. A message that is about to display, to radically put on display the pursuing and relentless love of God. At the core of this message is the belief, the reality, that we, God's people, tend to wander. We tend to drift toward other lovers. We tend to believe that God is not enough for us. His affirmation isn't enough. And so we wander after other gods. And God has a message for you today from Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Say, what in the world do all those names mean? Somebody say that. What does all that mean? That was a mouthful. Here's what it means. Real time, real place, real people, real lineage, real son, real marriage, real hearts that are about to be broken, real hearts that are drifting and wandering, a real, a real time in history, a real place, real issues. During the days of Jeroboam, this places it about 30 years before the rising dominant empire of Assyria comes down on Israel and takes them into captivity. This is the setting in which Hosea was written. A setting of turmoil. The, the, the kingdom of Israel has been divided and now there is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and, and they, they, they are split. And not only that, not only are they divided and they have multiple heads and multiple leaders, but they're also wandering away from God. They're pursuing all other gods. They're fornicating on their love relationship with the God of Israel. That is the setting that this is written in. When the Lord first spoke, what did He say? Look at verse 2. Through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife. Let's stop right there. We'll just pause. Go take yourself a wife. All right. As we sort of set this theme for what Hosea is all about, it's got two parts to it. 
the first one, the first part is it's a marriage theme. Let the wedding bells sort of go off in your mind. Bride coming down the aisle. All right, a marriage theme. Let's roll back to Genesis chapter 15. This is the marriage, the wedding between God and His people. Let me give you a glimpse of it. You don't have to turn there. I'll throw it up on the screen. Genesis chapter 15. We get a glimpse into the wedding. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so God is revealing Himself to a human being who's going to have children by the grace of God. And God says, your reward will be very great. Verse 5, He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars. Have you ever tried to do that before? You can't number them. And if you can, number them, he says. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the wedding bells, all right? This is bride coming down the aisle. This is, this is a glimpse into the, the wedding of God and a people that are going to come through Abram. God linked himself with this people, and he essentially says, you are mine, and I am yours. So, it's, it's, it's a wedding. It's a marriage. That's the first theme. Second theme is this. The second part of it is the type of marriage that it was. So, here he says to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Now that word whoredom right there is the Hebrew word zenunim, which is not the typical word that you would use for prostitute. It's a broader word than that, which incorporates every kind of sexual sin, including an intent towards sexual sin, a bent towards sexual sin. What does that mean? It means this. The wedding was happy. All right? Everything looked good at first. She wasn't in the red light district, standing on the corner. The wedding, was a it was a happy wedding. So here's the virgin bride, Gomer, walking down the aisle, escorted by her proud father. And then there's the bridesmaids over here in their pastel dresses that they're going to regret wearing someday, Right? And they're crying and they're tearing up as they see their friend Gomer come down. And, and then here's the, the groomsmen and they're sort of like glancing over at Hosea to see if he's got a tear in his own eye. And then there's Hosea standing there watching the bride come down, seeing her, receiving her. And Hosea standing there with a solemn, faithful, obedient face. Obedient. Think of the obedience, all right? Hosea is intentionally marrying a girl and he knows what she's going to become. He knows as she's coming down, yay, friends, tears, he knows what is about, he knows the excruciating unfaithfulness that is about to, about to come into his life. How does he know that? Because this is a marriage that is going to reflect God and his people. 
So Hosea is putting two and two together here. And he knows what he's getting into. Listen, first lesson that we see from Hosea is this. God's love for you is unconditional. God's love for you is unconditional. Let me explain. If you were told that the the person that you are about to marry is going to be unfaithful to you, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again with many men or many women, would you continue on with that marriage? Like, that would be kind of a deal breaker. Like, I know, all right, you would actually kind of be dumb, all right? If you know, like, God came and said, by the way, like, let me just give you a glimpse. Unfaithfulness is going to be riddled in your relationship with this person. You would be like, not, not me. Listen, do you see the kind of love right now that God is portraying through Hosea here? So Hosea is marrying a girl, loving her to the degree that he knows what she is going to become. And he's marrying her anyway. Do you see what that says about God's love for you? When God set his affections upon you, he knew what you would become. He knew how unfaithful you would be. He knew how your heart would be prone to wander and your spirit would always want to be chasing after other gods and other things. He knew what we would become, yet He still married us. When, he, when the wedding bells sounded for Israel and that, there's that wedding between Him and, and Abram and, and the people that are going to come from Abram, He knew, making that covenant with Abram, He knew that they were going to be grumbling in the wilderness. He knew that they were going to be doubting him, saying, I don't think God loves us. He's not taking care of us. He's forgotten. He knew that. He knew that they were going to allow multiple gods into the land and into their lives and try to find significance elsewhere. He knew that. When God set his his affections on me, he's like, Joel, I know how rebellious your heart is going to be. And I loved you anyway. Friends, when he set his affections on you, he knew He knew what you were going to be. God's love for us is absolutely unconditional. Central to the Bible is this fact that God is just simply not like us. He doesn't love like we do. What we would do in our right mind, God doesn't love like us. He loves unconditionally knowing what we will become. So that's first lesson here. Let's go back to the story of Hosea. He has a boy. She conceives and bore him, verse 3, bore him a son. The Lord said, call his name Jezreel. Now, when I had three children, or my wife had three children, I just helped in the process. We uh, named them Jaden, Eden, and Haddon. Now, we pretty much chose those names because we liked the sound of them, right? Like that's pretty, today we, we pretty much choose names for our kids because we like the sound of them, all right? They, or, and then they might have some significance, they might have some meaning, like Haddon, for instance, is named after one of my heroes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you know. What Hosea is doing, though, is something different. He's, he's naming, the, the very names of his children are going to become his message, 
All right? So I didn't name my kids thinking about what I was going to preach to you over the next 20 years. Right? That's what Hosea does. He names his children with this great symbolism to communicate his message to God's people. The first one he names Jezreel. Now, why does he name him Jezreel? What is this bit about the blood of Jezreel and the valley of Jezreel? Let me tell you a story. Going back in time in the history of Israel to 1 Kings. It's a story where uh, the people of God begin to seek another lover. They begin to see another dude and they're going after him because God doesn't seem enough anymore. The guy they're going after is named Baal. So in 1 Kings, we see King Ahab. He's a king of Israel where God is to be worshipped. And this is what he does. I'll actually read it to you. King Ahab erects an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, which was at the time the, the capital of Israel. So Baal, a foreign god, another god, all right, a statue. King Ahab becomes a Baal promoter in God's kingdom, all right? In Israel, he builds in the capital a house for Baal to be worshipped in that he builds an altar for Baal, an Asherah pole, and it says in 1 Kings that he did more evil in the sight of God than any other king before him. He was leading the nation into a fornicating relationship with Baal. Now, where does Jezreel fall into this? This is where King Ahab's reign ends. King Ahab spots a, a, a vineyard that, that he wants. It's, it's in the valley of Jezreel. And the guy won't sell him the vineyard. And so King Ahab's Baal-promoting, Baal-worshipping wife convinces him that he ought to murder the owner of the vineyard so that he can then have the vineyard in the valley of Jezreel. And he goes along with it. And he murders in the valley of Jezreel. God says, enough is enough. Baal's or Ahab's reign then ends with God saying, I'm not going to destroy you now, but in the days of your son, I will destroy your throne. And that's where we're at today in Hosea. God is saying, do you see where Baal has taken you, Ahab? Do you see what promoting Baal has taken? It's led to murder. Like you're completely just gone off the graph as far as the, the holiness that, you, that I have set for you. You are murdering to, to take property. Do you see what your fornicating relationship, do you see where it's taken you? And so God simply says, enough is enough. Now, first son of Hosea, it's his boy, little junior, he gives him the name Jezreel, which is this reminder, like this is sort of like the club where you go and you found out that your wife was with another man and you name your, the son is now named after that club, after that, this symbol of like, this is what happens when we go after other gods. Listen, guys, this sets the entire stage for the book. I wanted to go through that for you because we have to understand that to understand Hosea. 
Hosea is not just about a man and a wife. Hosea is about God of Israel and Baal. And which one are we going to love? Whose arms are we going to seek after? God or Baal? I want to talk about adultery. Spiritual adultery. You see, you may have a Baal in your life right now. Now, we don't worship golden calves and we don't worship like altars of Baal. And we don't build shrines of Baal and have Asherah poles in our living room. Our gods today, our deities that we build for ourselves are much more sophisticated than that. And they're much more subtle. Sex, power, money, the praise of other people, approval of other people, what bales might be in your life. Who are you seeking after? A quick test for you to know whether or not there is a bale in your life. When you hear this, God approves of you, okay? When you hear that phrase, God approves of you. Ask yourself, is his approval enough? Is God's approval of your life enough for you? And if not, where is it that you need to seek further approval? Whose approval do you need? What's, what, what approval do you need? Let me give you an example of this. Uh, in my own re love relationship with my wife. If I were to preach like a really... Let me just say this. After my sermon, if, if you guys all came up and you're like, great sermon, like good job. And then I go home and my wife says, like, you were not preaching the word of God today. Like that was the word of Joel. Now, if that were the case... Um, how would I feel about my sermon? It doesn't matter what you guys said. It matters what she said. Let's flip it. If, if I preach and you guys all like storm out of here angry at me and I go home and, she, and my, my wife says, Joel, you were preaching the Word of God. Like, don't, don't worry. You were preaching God's Word. You gave a message of God's Word. How am I going to feel about my sermon? You see, the one we love most is the one whose approval we seek after, Right? Let's, let's put this another way, something that maybe you could relate to a little more so. If, if you uh, are surrounded by people that tell you that you are ugly, and your spouse, if you are married, says, no, you are beautiful, how do you feel? Beautiful. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If everybody else thinks that you're beautiful, and tells you that you're beautiful, and your spouse tells you that you're ugly, how are you going to feel? Whose approval do you need? So if God says you are beautiful, if God says you are affirmed, I love you, whose approval do you need beyond that? Are there bales in your life? Tim Keller put it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, when people say, I know God forgives me, 
but I can't forgive myself. They mean that they have failed an idol whose approval is more important than God's. Whose approval do you need? I can't forgive myself even though I know God forgives me. Why? Well, because they know. Because I'm ashamed and because every time I see them, so I can't forgive myself because they know. Are they, is their approval more important to you than God's approval? Than God's forgiveness? You say, well, I know. And, and I know that I'm better than that. And I know, look, is, is, is your ego more important than God's approval? Friends, who, who are we seeking after? Whose word, of, whose thumbs up do we need in our life? What bales may there be in your heart and in your life? Let's get back to the story of Hosea. Look at verse 6. So she conceives again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Notice, as he has another daughter, his name is missing as the father. Verse 3, it's clear. She bore Hosea a son. Now Gomer just simply has a daughter. No mention of Hosea as the father. You see, at this point, things are getting bad in their, rela their relationship. The honeymoon is over. And, and, and his love for her is not enough. His affirmation of her is not enough. His approval of her is not enough. And she's beginning to look for other men. And she has a daughter. The name, no mercy. We begin to see here the anger that is growing, the frustration that is growing toward an unfaithful spouse. No mercy. And God relates this now to His people and He says, I will have no mercy. Like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of you seeking after other gods. I'm tired of you trying to find affirmation elsewhere. I'm tired of it and I will have no mercy. But even with this, look at verse 7. Even with this, there's a sign of hope. He says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Now Judah was one of the faithful tribes in Israel. So he's saying, I will have mercy on them and I will save them. But not by power, not by might, not by army, not by sword, but by the Lord Himself. This is a, a glimpse of that incarnate one who's coming. A, a glimmer of hope in the middle of a broken marriage. Now, even with this sign of hope, it almost seems like that is just shattered in and of itself with the birth of the third child. Look at it. Verse 8, when she weaned, had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name. And the Hebrew is not mine. Not mine. 
this is not my son. Not names that you want to be giving to your children, right? Like these names didn't quite make it into the book of baby names. Not mine. I don't even know you anymore. Like I am not for look at the look at what he says. Not mine, for not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Do you see how this is a reversal of the marriage language? Marriage language, when you get married, you say, I am yours and you are mine. God is reversing that. You are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, the implications of God being um, yours or Him being for you, Paul spells it out in Romans 8, 31. He says, if God is for us, finish it, who can be against us? Look what's happening here. God is saying, like, I don't know you. I don't even recognize you. You're not mine. And I now, he says, I am not for you. The dominant, violent empire of Assyria is about to come down. And listen, I am no longer for you. Do you see the tragedy of sin here? God is saying, look, you want your lovers. See how they do for you. You want these other things. You treasure these other things more than you treasure me. Then fine. Have it. But you can't have both. You can't be running to Baal and then be coming home to me. We're not doing this anymore, he says. You are not my people and I'm not for you. And his anger is against the people. Now, let's just ask a question at this point. Does this mean that, that God is is like this uh, angry old dude who is just irritable and takes you out back, pulls out his pistol, and he says, I am done with you. Is God an angry old dude? Let me answer that question by asking another question and sort of painting a picture for you. Imagine, imagine that there is a husband who walks into a bedroom and he finds his wife with another man. And he shrugs, sort of smirks and shakes his head and quietly closes the door. Imagine there is another man who finds his wife with another man. And he gets angry. And he starts throwing things. And he starts shouting. And he's crying and tears just flowing down his face into his open shouting mouth. And all he tastes is salt as he screams, I don't even know you anymore. Answer this question. Which of those two husbands loves their wife more? You see... Love with no anger is not love. The very fact that God is angry here 
is a sign of his love. It is a testament to his love as he shouts, I don't even know you anymore. You're not mine. Now this is hard for us because God's anger is so very different than ours. Alright, so going back to dude in the room catches his wife angry, okay? And we've all seen this played out in the movies. What happens? A bullet ends up in two heads, right? Man's anger leads to destruction. Man's wrath always is sin, or it almost always leads us toward a sinful bent, and we do sinful things, and we lash out, and we kill, and we destroy. That's what man's anger does. God's anger is totally different than ours. God's anger is always pure. It's always good. It's always right. It's always holy. It's always loving. And it leads him to unthinkable conclusions. All right? Let me show you the unthinkable conclusion now that this anger he has towards a wayward, unfaithful bride. Look at his unthinkable conclusion. Verse 10. Look at this first word. Let me just show you this word. Yet. Everybody say yet. That is a conjunction. That, 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 that is a word that means nevertheless. So with all of these things being so, we, we were married, beautiful wedding, it was nice. We had a first son together, Jezreel, and now we've had another child, but not mine. Another child, not mine. We're going to name it not mine. Like things are go- have gone terrible. There's probably multiple men at this point. Year, a couple years have gone by. Hosea has been faithful and obedient to God the entire time. And the word comes down, nevertheless. With all of that being so, with all of our wayward, wandering hearts being so, with all of the sin that we find ourselves in, nevertheless. Yet, let's read it, look at it. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. This is the language of the marriage covenant. Remember back there with Genesis 15, Abram? God says, count the stars. Like this is a covenant that I'm making with you. You will be blessed and you will have a great inheritance. There will be a massive amount of people that are saved through you. He's saying, nevertheless, I made this covenant with my bride. I made my covenant with my bride. And what God is saying here is this. This is a covenant of grace. Regardless of how many times Gomer has gone out and cheated on him, he is saying, Hosea, I want you to mirror my covenant of grace and I want you to say, nevertheless, I love you. You are mine. You will be blessed. You will have my inheritance. Let's, let's look at verse 11. Let's finish verse 10. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. He's saying, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up 
from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Who is that one head? Do you see where this is leading us? This is the picture that we have. Hosea, just crazy obedience to God. Think about it. I mean, we're not talking about a couple days here of an unfaithful wife or a couple months. We're talking about a couple years in the first chapter. All right, we still have a few more to go. A couple years of unfaith, just obedience to God. What it's saying is this there is another who is coming, there is an- another Hosea that is coming who is also going to be obedient who is also going to pursue an unfaithful bride, an unfaithful people, and he will be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Jesus, the story of Jesus is the story of Hosea. Jesus is the second Hosea who pursues and woos that bride. And not only that, but obedient to the point of death, means that He took the place of her unfaithfulness. He took her unfaithfulness on Him on that cross. And He bore the weight of that guilt. He bore the weight of that shame for you. Peter, in in the New Testament, he takes this and he literally just applies this to the New Testament church. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. If you are not a Christian, the offer that stands here in Hosea and through the rest of the scriptures is this to go from, to transition from not mine to mine. I am not for you to I am for you. Now, who can be against you? To go from no mercy to mercy. To go from darkness to a marvelous light. Now, why would God pursue us? When we think about the idols and the bales, when I think about it in my own life, the, the, the regular drifting that I experience toward other bales, toward other gods, toward other places of affirmation. I need to, like, like, I need my wife's affirmation instead of God's. Do you see how, I mean, do you see how how deep this goes in our lives. Like, whose affirmation do I need? Who am I worshiping? Who do I most treasure? When, when I think about myself and my wayward, unfaithful heart, why would God pursue us? Why would Christ redeem us? It says it right here in 1 Peter. He says, to proclaim the excellencies of Him. Why, or let me put it this way, when we look at Hosea and Gomer, all right, when we look at that story, what do we see? What we see 
is the excellencies of Hosea. We see a great, patient, relentless, pursuing lover. Gomer and her wayward heart makes much of Hosea's love, doesn't it? Friends, that is the picture that we have here. Our wayward hearts, our past, our present, makes much of God's grace. It proclaims the excellencies. When God says, I'm looking at you, Abram, and I'm looking at you, Israel, as much as you have fallen away, when people look at that, they're going to say, that is one patient God. Friends, when people look at you and they hear your story, they hear your testimony, they hear what you once were, it makes much of God. How does your past magnify the grace of God? How do your, your present failings and struggles magnify the grace of of God. God saved you to make much of His name. What hope does Gomer then give to us as sinners? Here it is. It is the hope of a real, pursuing, relentless love that won't stop. God won't stop pursuing you. God won't stop pursuing you as, as often as you are unfaithful to Him, as often as you turn away. God has a love for you that won't stop. We often sing this song, Come Thou Fount. You know this song? Come Thou Fount of every blessing. And then we get to this third verse. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let the goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. That's the message of Hosea right there, that He will pursue us. And as much as we drift, as much as we are prone to wander, He will continue to bind us to Himself. And then we sing that third line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Sing it with me. Prone to leave the God I love. And when we sing that, we all resonate with it, don't we? If you know that song and you've sung it before, you say like, that's my line. That's me. I am prone to wander. And I feel it. And I'm prone to leave the God I love. And the message that we receive here in the hope of Gomer is that God will continue to pursue us, our wandering hearts, and He will grab us and He will get in His face and He will say, look, I love you. I love you. I love you to the point of death. I have died for you to make you right with me. I treasure you. I value you. You are beautiful. You are significant. You need no other lover to tell you that. Treasure me, God says, above all. Treasure Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize how, uh, how we truly are prone to wander. Prone to leave You, the God who loves us. God, if it wasn't for Your pursuing and relentless love in our lives, we would have drifted far away and we would not be sitting in this room today. But You have pursued us and You have wooed us. Father, there are some in this room suffering today. And they need to hear Your voice of love. Remind them that the suffering we face in this world is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Father, there are some here in this room who have never tasted the goodness of Christ. They've never tasted His love. God, let them know that You have wooed them to the point that they are sitting here today so they can hear this great message of love. And I pray that we all then lean into and treasure Christ and hang on to Him with all that we have and desire to seek His face more than any other face and hear His words of affirmation more than any other. Let us renounce our idols. Let us walk away from our lovers and cling to You and You alone. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.